Episode 34, Medieval Literature. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Okay, I know. There's nothing more eye-rollingly boring than medieval literature, right? No, wrong! It's super interesting in the stories that are told, the development of English as a language, and the development of the novel as a literary genre. Did you ever read Harry Potter? Those are good novels, right? Both the concept of a novel and some of the cool things in Harry Potter, like wizards, hippogriffs, magic wands, magic potions, magic swords, a lot of these ideas come from medieval literature. But before I talk about medieval literature, I need to talk about modern literature, that is, the internet. More specifically, the brand new Short Walk Through Our Long History website. Yep, if you go to shortwalkthroughhistory.com, that's shortwalkthroughhistory.com, you will now find the website for this podcast. There are links to all the previous episodes. There's a bibliography page. There's a page for stuff that I find interesting. And for each of the episodes, I'm trying to upload like a couple of visual aids that help you visualize some of the things that we're talking about in that episode. For previous episodes, I've posted a few cool images of things that I said at the time that you should go Google, like the image of a Macedonian phalanx, for example, for episode 8.1, which was on Greek military strategy. Also, siege towers, a few maps, some other images. Anyway, from here on out, I'm planning on adding images for things that I talk about that that need images. And I'm also going to try to go back and fill in other images for things I've mentioned previously. So yeah, there's a website now. So, back to the podcast. Now, we're going to take a look quickly at a few important pieces of medieval literature and see why they're important and what they can tell us about the people of the Middle Ages and their lives. So why is this literature important? These stories give us a rare glimpse into the lives, language, and worldview of the people of the medieval era. We don't have a lot of examples of literature from the Middle Ages, and so it's harder to get a picture of how people actually live, what they valued, how they saw the world. We have a lot more info on the daily lives of, like, the Romans, but less on the people of the Middle Ages. That's why it's called the Dark Ages, right? So these stories are helpful in understanding their lives and worldview. Also, I think it's interesting to see how novels as a literary genre develop. Remember, we're still in the era before the printing press, so the things that were written back in the Middle Ages had to be copied by hand. At one point, I got to visit the Oxford University Library once, the Bodleian Library, and they had a hand-copied copy of the Canterbury Tales. Their copy was written down only a few years after the original was written down by Geoffrey Chaucer. That was pretty cool. It's one of the oldest books they have. I've posted a pic of it on the website. Because things were hand-copied, There are not really all that many early copies of them, and the ones that we do have are super valuable. You also have to consider that there are probably a fair number of other things that were written during these times, but just not all of them survived. 
people tended to make copies of the things that they thought were really good. And the B-League stuff might not have gotten copied very often, so that was the stuff that was more likely to be lost. Imagine if you had to decide, from all the books that you've read in the last five years, which ones you are going to hand copy. What would you choose? Uh, Yes, of course, all seven Harry Potter books, of course. But what else? I'd hand copy all the Narnia books as well, Till We Have Faces, and basically any other stuff written by C.S. Lewis that I could find. And also all of Tolkien. That would keep me very busy for quite a while. But then I'd probably start with, like, To Kill a Mockingbird and work my way through a few American classics. But that's just me. Anyway, hand copying takes a long, long time, and people tend to pick the most important stuff, the stuff they think is really good. My point is, I wouldn't be copying any, like, James Patterson books or any other kind of pop literature. That same stuff was happening back in the Middle Ages. They copied the good stuff. So the medieval stuff that survived, and we still have surviving copies of it, is most likely the stuff that people really liked. So let's look at some of the classics of medieval literature. First up is a French novel called The Song of Roland. This epic poem was written in an Anglo-Norman dialect that was a predecessor to modern French, but it also influenced modern English. But it's more French, so it's more of a French novel, plus it's about Charlemagne and some of his knights, and Charlie was a Frankish king, so it's French in that way too. It was probably written down about 1100 AD, although the story, the song, may be older than that. The oldest manuscript copy we have of this is from 1140 AD, and it's housed in the Bodleian Library at Oxford. And I've added a link to it in the podcast website. The Song of Roland tells the story of a battle between some of Charlemagne's knights and the Saracen, or that is Muslim army, from Spain. The actual battle, there really was a battle, It took place in 778, near the town of Roncevaux. The main knight is a guy named Roland. He's leading the rear guard of Charlemagne's army as they return from a campaign in Spain. They're ambushed by a larger Saracen army, and rather than blow his horn to alert Charlemagne and the mass of the army, Roland tries to fight with only the group that is with him, the rear guard. But of course, they're overwhelmed. And then finally, at the last minute, Roland sounds the horn. Charlemagne turns the army around, routs the Saracens, but by then, Roland has been killed. The Song of Roland romantically describes the greatness of Charlemagne and also the greatness of the knightly code of chivalry, which demands personal sacrifice, which is what Roland does, right? In reality, the battle that Roland died in was a pretty minor event in the reign of Charlemagne, and it's probably best to understand the Song of Roland as a description of the values more of the time that it was written down, which was the 1100s, rather than an accurate description of what happened back in 778. It's considered to be an important description, though, of the values of sacrifice, courage, and loyalty that were in fashion in the 1100s. It's sort of the French version of King Arthur and the Camelot tales that we see later in England, which captured and promoted the values of chivalry and bravery as well. So why is the Song of Roland important? It gives us a picture of some of the things that really were valued in the 1100s and 1200s, and the stories that the people of those days told to each other to define themselves. It shows that there was a strong concern 
with the struggle of good versus evil and an association of order and civilization, that is represented by Charlemagne and Roland, an association of order and civilization with goodness and of chaos being associated with evil, and that was represented by the Saracen army. The French people of the day saw themselves as being in a struggle between good and evil, both individually, each individual person, but also as a nation. That's different than the way we see the world today. Most people today don't see themselves, first of all, as part of a collective group that's struggling against evil, but most people don't see themselves as needing to be good. I hope you do. I hope you see that as an important part of your life's goal, but most people in the culture today don't. People don't see themselves as needing to be good and struggling against evil, resisting evil. Most people today don't see their overall culture either as being a struggle of good versus evil, where everyone is supposed to be good and be part of the overall fight against evil. That's just not how we see the world today. In fact, if you asked me, which you didn't, but hey, this is my podcast after all, I would say that a much larger part of our culture and many other cultures around the world have just given themselves up to evil. And now, as a culture, we're actually celebrating evil rather than resisting it. Or maybe we don't even see evil as evil anymore. Nothing is really seen as dark, dangerous, or bad, or worth fighting against. It used to be that you had to pretty clearly choose sides. Were you going to be fighting for good, or are you just accepting all the evil? Were you going to choose to be part of the evil? We don't see the world today as a titanic struggle of good versus evil, but that's the way they saw it back in the 1100s. Okay, I mentioned that Roland was sort of the French version of the story of King Arthur and Camelot, so let's talk about King Arthur and his story. The oldest, most famous version of King Arthur's story is called Le Morte de Arthur, or The Death of Arthur. It's known to have been written by a guy named Thomas Mallory, but no one's quite sure which Thomas Mallory of the day was the one that actually wrote it. It does seem, however, that whichever Mallory it was that wrote it, he was a knight, but he also spent years in prison for various crimes and for offending the king, and he wrote the novel while he was in prison. The novel tells the story of Arthur and his knights and their quest for the Holy Grail. It's a retelling of a bunch of legends about a possibly historic but possibly mythical king who ruled England back in the early days after the fall of Rome. But like the Song of Roland, it tells us more about the time that it was actually written than it tells us about the time period that it was set in. It talks a great deal about the value of loyalty and virtue and the importance of rewarding faithful service. In one simple way of looking at it, Arthur and his knights create a utopia called Camelot, and then it is undone by failings in love, in religion, and in loyalty. Arthur's best friend, Sir Lancelot, has an affair with Arthur's wife, Guinevere. That's a failure of love. Arthur and his knights go on a quest to find the Holy Grail, which is depicted as a failure of religious faith. And fighting among other families in and around Camelot shows a failure of loyalty. All of these things in the end conspire to bring down the perfect kingdom of Camelot, and they also lead to Arthur's death. In the end, it's a kind of mystical morality tale, a very early version of The Lord of the Rings, or Narnia, 
and it sets up a lot of the knight in shining armor themes that we see throughout medieval literature and on into modern literature. For example, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, one of my favorite movies, makes fun of the Arthurian legends. It's full of silly quests and weird mystical creatures. Are you suggesting that coconuts migrate? Anyway, the Arthurian legend is pretty deeply embedded in the collective English consciousness, and many stories, including the Holy Grail, are built around this legend. Early manuscripts of Mallory's work are some of the earliest examples of novels in English. It's Middle English, it's not Modern English, but it's still recognizably English. You could read it yourself, although there's a lot of words that you and I would struggle to pronounce. I've put an example of it on the website. And there was much rejoicing. Okay, our next important medieval story is everyone's favorite thing that they had to read in high school, Beowulf. Our oldest copies of Beowulf are in Old English or very early Middle English, but the story itself is a Norse story. It's That is, it's set in the Scandinavian area, and it's not set in England. It doesn't even actually have any English characters, but it's an English story written in English. It seems to be set around the 500s, and it has both Christian and pagan elements in it. All of this suggests that it was originally an old Norse or perhaps German story that was later written down in early English at a time when Christianity had come to dominate England, though the story itself kept some of its pagan overtones. Beowulf tells the story of a great hero named Beowulf, who comes to the aid of Hrothgar, the king of the Danes, the king of Denmark. Hrothgar's fabulous mead hall, that's a giant building that they all ate dinner in and served a lot of mead in, his mead hall has been raided several times by the monster Grendel. Beowulf sails to Denmark, and he defeats Grendel by ripping his arm off. Then Grendel's even more ferocious mother comes to attack the Mead Hall, but Beowulf beats her too, eventually. Beowulf then sails home, becomes the king of the Geats. The Geats were a tribe that lived in Sweden, and he reigns over them for 50 years. Then later, he fights to protect the Geats. He fights and kills a dragon, even though he's pretty old and everyone has abandoned him, but he fights and then he dies because he's wounded by the dragon. It's an interesting story, and it really does, like a good story should, paint a picture of the scenes it's describing, like Hrothgar's Mead Hall or Grendel's mother's lair. It's a classic hero tale, but it seems to have Christian overtones too, despite the mythical pre-Christian setting. Beowulf is willing to sacrifice himself for others, and he always strives to do what is right and virtuous. He's also fighting against monsters who are threatening the peace, and he seems to be fighting for the good of the community. All of this kind of Christian in its worldview. Also, he dies a kind of sacrificial death, but maybe we're reading into it a little bit there. It is different than many other non-Christian mythical heroes. There are no real historical references to Beowulf, but a lot of the other characters and places that are referenced do seem to be real. They're mentioned in other historical doc documents. For example, Hrothgar. He does seem to have really been the king of the Danes at one point. So, why is the story of Beowulf important today? In part, because it paints yet another rare picture of the lives and values of the medieval world. 
Also, because it's one of the oldest stories that we have that was written in English, and it helps us to see something of the evolution of our own convoluted language. Plus, it really is a pretty good story. The last bit of medieval literature I want to look at in this episode isn't really literature, per se, but it is one of the most important documents of all of Western history. Let's take a look at the Magna Carta. Okay, I have to admit, that I shoehorned the document, the Magna Carta, into an episode about literature. It's not really a literature topic, but I didn't really have anywhere else to put it. I have a sort of plan for where I'm going in the podcast, and I didn't see a better place to talk about the Magna Carta than here in this episode about medieval literature, because it is medieval, even if it's not literature. Arguably, the Magna Carta is important enough to have its own episode, but it's probably not enough to fill up an entire episode, so I've put it in here. So here we go. In 1215, a group of English barons basically forced the king, that is King John, under threat of civil war, to sign and seal a charter that protected their rights and the rights of all free men. A charter is basically a contract. It's a deal or an agreement between two parties. The barons, including all the dukes and earls, etc., they all agreed to uphold the king's right to rule, and they agreed to pay him certain taxes. And the king agreed to protect a long list of rights, 63 rights, that the barons felt were their rights. The king was obligated by the charter to not violate the barons' rights. The threat behind the document was that if the king did violate the rights of one of the barons, the rest of the barons would come together in opposition to the king and possibly start a civil war. The Magna Carta, importantly, was seen as the rule of the land, applying to all of England and all the English people and all the English holdings. Remember that when 1776 comes around. And one of the key aspects of the document was the idea that the king himself was subject to the rule of law. That is, the laws of the country, the laws of the people, applied not just to the people, but they also applied to the king. And he couldn't just go violating laws as he saw fit just because he was the king. This was an important principle back in the Roman Republic. Remember the rule of law? The idea that no one was above the law, that the law applied to everyone from the lowest to the highest, from the poorest to the richest, that was a Roman principle. That principle had basically been missing from European politics and culture since the fall of the Roman Republic back in 48 BC when Julius Caesar was first appointed dictator. So there had been almost 1,200 years where basically instead of the rule of the law, it was the rule of the strong. The Magna Carta wasn't the first charter of rights signed by a king, but it was the one that took the strongest hold in the English culture, and it became the basis for all the other charters that kings down the road had to sign, guaranteeing the rights of one group or another, free men, barons, earls, etc., in order to keep the peace. That's why it's known as the Magna Carta, which means Great Charter. Another key principle that lies behind the Magna Carta, though it's not spoken directly in the document itself, is the idea that the barons and all free men, that does appear in the charter, all free men inherently have rights. These rights are not 
bestowed on them by the king or the government, the people themselves have certain inherent rights just because they're alive and they're free people. People have rights just because they're people. Not because the government benevolently says to them, okay, here, you're allowed to do this or that. The rights are inherent, and even the king can't unilaterally just take them away. For example, an English baron has the right to own property. It's his property. And the king can't just unilaterally say, that's my property now. The baron has the right to continue to own his own property. Rights, all human rights, are inherently the people's rights. They're not the king's to give to whom he chooses or remove from whom he chooses. You'll see this idea again in 500 years in the words, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That's an important idea there, right? And it's the core of the Magna Carta, too, that government's power comes from the consent of the governed. And then Behind the Magna Carta as well, though it's not written in the document, is also the threat that we find in the Declaration of Independence. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right. There it is again, the inherent right. It is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. This principle, right here, it's the crucial difference between freedom and tyranny. Do all humans have inherent rights? And then thus, the role of government is to protect the rights of those people, of everyone? Or do governments exist to protect the privilege and position of those at the top, at the expense of those at the bottom. Tyrannical governments have always, all throughout history, been an exercise of those at the top suppressing the rights of the rest of society and not protecting the rights that humans seem to inherently have just by virtue of existing. But rather, tyrannical governments abuse and minimize those rights. Which way does it seem that we're headed today in our Western societies? Does it seem like the Western governments today are focused on protecting human rights and being responsible to the people from whose consent they derive their powers? Or does it seem like the governments are trying to absorb more and more power for the government, insulating themselves and the elite powers behind the government from the rest of the people? Yeah, you thought this was an episode on medieval literature. Well, so did I when I started, but then I got talking about the Magna Carta and it made me think about our current situation. Anyway, the Magna Carta was one of the most important documents of medieval literature. Very, very important document, even though it's not technically literature. And that's the point of this podcast, right? Understanding the present by understanding the past. I guess all of this episode has something to do with this. 
Next episode, we're going to take a side trip to the Far East, and we're going to look at the Mongols. And maybe another shorter side trip, not as far east, but still Eastern Europe. And we're going to take a quick look at Vlad Dracula. Then, the episode after that, we'll begin looking at the beginning of the Age of Exploration as Europe begins to come out of the Dark Ages and into the Renaissance. (laughs) 